Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Fenway Rundown. This is Mass Live's new Red Sox podcast. I don't know how long I can say that it's new because this is episode like six or seven at this point, uh, depending on if you count our soft opening as an episode. And it is the week of the MLB draft, which this year is a little bit magnified because there's nothing else going on baseball related other than uh, annoying negotiations between the owners and players about potentially starting the season. And instead of boring the audience with that, I thought we'd talk some drafts. And to do that, I have a former North Carolina classmate of mine and a draft analyst, national writer for Baseball America. Carlos Calazzo is our guest, taking time out of his very busy schedule to uh, talk about the draft for a few minutes, which we greatly appreciate. Yeah, thanks for having me, Chris. Uh, it's always fun to talk draft, especially with just a few nights to go until we see what happens. Uh, like you said, it's it's kind of nice that the attention is all in the draft. I feel like we might mm-hmm. get a few more eyes than normal. But at the same time, it's under pretty bad circumstances, obviously, <laughs> with just five rounds right. in a really deep draft class. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. But excited yeah. that it's coming up here. Like everything else, the MLB draft has been completely uh, turned on its head obviously the uh, labor agreement that temporary labor agreement that really didn't accomplish anything um, (laughs) now that we look back and see that they had different interpretations on both sides of pretty much everything they negotiated in March one thing that they did apparently agree on was that they were going to shorten the draft significantly Um, there was some debate whether it'd be five or ten rounds at that point and now uh, we know and we've known for some time that the draft which is regularly 40 rounds is going to be only five for the Red Sox it's going to be only four picks because they lost their second rounder as a result of the sign stealing investigation as we all know so Carlos as someone who covers the draft I mean how shocking was that outcome I'm sure that wasn't even something you thought was possible back in March when it first uh, became news yeah I was I was really strongly thinking it was going to be 10 rounds and I'm sure part of that is because a lot of the guys that I talked to on the scouting side and a lot of the advisors that that are involved in all of this really wanted 10 rounds. So maybe, maybe that was why uh, yeah. I expected it to be 10, 10 rounds just because all of those people, the more the merrier for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, the owners don't want to spend any money. So they figured they would have the shortest draft in history and uh, all of them were disappointed. Obviously I was disappointed as someone who covers the draft. I mean, we have 500 scouting reports at baseball America and there are going to be 160 <laughs> players drafted. Right. So a little bit of overkill there, but I do think it's a it's a pretty crappy situation for the players. I think these are the guys who who come out the worst from it. I mean, there's going to be a significant roster crunch in the college game. Mm-hmm. Uh, not enough scholarships to go around there. There are going to be a lot of guys who are squeezed out of the draft who otherwise would have started their pro career. And again, it, it's the deepest draft that I've seen in my time at Baseball America. So just bad timing for a really good class. Yeah, obviously it's it's tough for the players. I think this is the type of thing where, yeah, it's saving the owners really not that much, right? Like a million per team or something like that. Yeah, and everybody, both on the player development and front office side, and the players and the agents, nobody's really happy about the outcome. Yeah, I think it's like seventy-five or eighty percent of the total signing bonus money comes from the top five rounds, anyways. So, yeah. in the big scope of things, you're really not saving a ton. Uh, especially when you consider all the money is deferred outside of 100000 anyways. So right. uh, it, it kind of sucks, but at the same time, it, it's kind of, it's the reality that we're living in and teams are going to try to make the most of it when they have a three- or seven-player draft, depending on the extra picks they have and the picks yep. they've lost, like the Red Sox. So uh, it'll be weird, and I think it's going to be a draft that, regardless of kind of how the class turns out, we'll look back on it for a long time. 
As you've talked to agents and scouts and, and players and everybody that's involved in this process, you know, there was so much uncertainty at the beginning, but what are the most tangible changes that you've seen? Like, have you seen one demographic take itself out of the process earlier? When we talked to Paul Taboni, the Red Sox scouting director the other day, he said guys weren't really preemptively taking themselves out. But um, have you seen changes in how teams might think they might want to maybe either be safer with their first rounder or riskier mm -hmm. with their first rounder because there's only five or less than five picks? Yeah, I think there have been a couple of guys who, uh, as of late, have actually taken themselves out of the draft. Dylan Cruz, the prep outfielder uh, from Florida, is is probably the most prominent name to remove himself from the draft. Mm -hmm. He's an LSU commit. I think he would have been a tough sign in normal circumstances, and, and obviously in a, a shortened draft, maybe that was exponentially so. Uh, he removed his name, but I, I think in general, teams this year are probably going to lean more towards safer profiles guys yep. that they have more history with, a better track record with. And that's typically the college players that have just performed mm -hmm. at a high level in, in big conferences against better competition. I think on the high school side, I think there are a lot of high-profile guys who were at a lot of the big summer events last year that scouts got to evaluate under normal circumstances that they will probably be okay. But I think the, the players who are hurt are all of the Northern players in high school who maybe aren't at the kind of elite tier that – a Mick Abel or a Nick Bitsko is at. Right. Um, and players who just honestly were a little bit lower profile and never really had a chance to break out. It seems like every year there are pop-up players around the country who just perform better than expected or make big growths over the offseason. And teams really just didn't get a chance to see a lot of those guys. So I think because you have a more limited window this spring to actually see players and because you have a smaller pool that kind of determines the success or the failure of your draft class, I think generally more teams will be more inclined to lean towards safety. Uh, now, I do think there will probably be a few outliers there. There are always some teams who are um, less scared of taking on risk. The Padres and the Indians, I feel like, are two teams who are, are pretty normally aggressive in the draft, and I think mm -hmm. that will probably be the same this year. Uh, but I think in general, the industry will probably lean towards safety. With the Red Sox specifically, uh, I know you, you cover all 30 teams and kind of have a pulse on what they're going to do. I've seen a few different people say they're going to be going for upside and going for ceiling. I've seen Mick Abel, he's a name you just mentioned, linked to the Red Sox over and over and over again. Uh, what have you heard on them specifically at number 17, and, and how mm -hmm. does not having that second-round pick potentially change their outlook? Yeah, they're they're in a difficult spot in terms of like my ability to, to know who they're kind of taking. I feel like they're in a mm -hmm. spot in the draft where they're going to have a, a, a number of different demographics and different players to consider. We have had Mick Abel mock to them previously yep. and our most updated mock um we have mccable going in front of them mm -hmm. uh, i think there's a chance that that he doesn't make it down that far we've got Pete Crow armstrong there now and he's a guy again yep. who, who we've had there uh a few times and i think the, the guys that we have linked to the red sox and our mocks are more just kind of how the board works itself out rather mm -hmm. than any hard information linking a player there i think yeah in that kind of middle range, kind of once we get into the 12, 13 spot and onward, it's been very tough to link any teams with with really good information just because you don't have scouts out at fields kind of seeing which decision makers are bearing down on which players. I know last year we had um, the Yankees' first-round pick, Anthony Volpe. We had him mocked uh, and our last, and our, our last mock draft. And, and we got that one, right. And that was just because we knew that they were at his games and watching him and bearing down on him. Mm -hmm. So we had good information on, on a team in the back of the first round 
simply because there are games. It's tougher right. to get that this year, so I think it's a little bit more wide open. Uh, so I guess the so the short answer is I don't I don't have a great feel, mm-hmm. uh, but I I know generally the names that kind of make sense in that range, at least based on the information that I have lately. And you're going off the the premise that what you're mocking or what you're assuming, um, even as plugged in as you are in this year and this crazy uh, shortened draft with all these circumstances could completely uh, not be the case when the board falls on Wednesday, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, every year I've done it, there's always been a surprise. I mean, even higher than that in the top 12 picks, Matthew Liebertor falling down the board, Kyler Murray going higher than I expected him to go. So I think even in a normal year, it's, it keeps you humble just because at the end of the day, you really don't know what's going to happen and you can feel mm-hmm. as good as possible about the information. But one player goes differently up top that has ripple effects. Uh, and there are plenty of teams who just keep things close to the vest or have a bunch of different options or, you know, it's just, it's just tough to figure it out. Reading the future is, is difficult and especially so this year, but we try to make it the best we can. And, and I feel reasonably good about our mock as it stands right now. I think the most interesting thing of this to me, and I wrote about it a couple months ago and talked to you briefly then, was about the undrafted pool because I think that, you know, and as I wrote again in my notes column this weekend, uh, there's not, it's not just five guys and five bites at the apple because there are, I guess, this completely uncertain amount of guys who are going to be in that undrafted pool. And just to refresh mm-hmm. everybody's memory, anybody who doesn't get drafted is eligible to be signed for a maximum bonus of 20000 which is way less than what it normally would be. Um, there was a number that agents and players originally when I was talking to them were completely uh, shocked and very upset about. Um, and I'm sure that is still the case. But um, I mean, just uh, the question that I had for you back then, I, I wonder if you can answer it now. How many guys do you think are going to be signing for 20,000 across baseball? Like, is it going to be a really good, solid pool of these undrafted guys? Or are these guys going to go back now that they have an extra year of eligibility or go to college if they were a high school guy or go to JUCO. Yeah, I still, I don't know if I have a, even now, I don't know if I have a more clear mm-hmm. uh, answer for it just because I think it's largely going to, it's going to depend uh, on the teams. It's going to be team to team, team, to team uh, depending on kind of where they're at with minor league players now, how many players they need to cut in the future with the minor league con- contraction uh, probably coming in the future. Uh, and I think just depending on the different uh, pitch making ability that these teams have, it'll depend on on the players. But like you said, the 20k, I think that's going to incentivize a lot of teams to get as many of these guys as they can. Because yeah. while I do think the 20k is just going to be a non-starter for a lot of these players, every year you have guys signed for less than 20k, and on day three, whether that's seniors, whether that's junior players who are just kind of done with school, yep. uh, and teams know that they're getting more in player value than that 20k signing bonus so i think teams would probably want to be pretty aggressive with this now i i think the the biggest limiting factor here is just if you don't have anywhere for these guys to go play once they go sign yep it doesn't make a lot of sense to sign 10 20 30 guys Mm -hmm. um at the same time this is the most valuable avenue to acquire talent and i think that there are going to be plenty of players uh, who are willing to take 20K and try and jumpstart their career and get outside of that college crunch that's probably going to happen. Um, that's a long answer to not really give you a specific number, but I think most teams would probably be involved with a handful, three to five guys at least, I would guess, but maybe we'll have more information after uh, day two of the draft is over. I think mm-hmm. they can start signing those guys on Sunday. Yeah, it's it, to me, you know, if I'm 
one of those kids who goes undrafted, I also look at it, obviously the financial side of it, you're taking, making a huge bet on yourself, but mm-hmm. um, you also would have all a, pa- a lot of power in terms of where you'd be playing that you wouldn't in a normal structure. Like if you're exactly. offered 20,000 from 30 teams and you can pick from either what you look at as the best organizations, your favorite team or ones that have certain facilities that you like, you know, to mm-hmm. me, that would be an appealing side of that as well. Yeah, and and how nice is it for for these guys who aren't drafted? Obviously, let's be clear, it's definitely not a good situation for these players with the 20k cap put right. on them. I think that's that's pretty terrible. I mean, the last slot value for the 160th pick is 324,000. Mm-hmm. Just to give some more context to that, but I think you do bring up an excellent point. Whereas normally players have no say in where they go, where they play their pro ball. So if you're a high school pitcher and you look at a team who has a really good track record of developing high school pitchers, maybe that is really encouraging to you. Maybe you want to start your career with that program. If you're a if you're a hitter and you look at a team that's done a really good job getting the most out of their hitters in the minor leagues, uh, maybe that's a factor to you. So I do think those things are going to matter. And also with kind of the uh, economic situation we've had in, in the country, I think while 20k isn't a lot, it, it might be a game changer to some of these guys. I think it's right. a, it's probably a short term um, kind of outlook, but at the same time, it, it just depends on everyone's individual situation. So. I do think there are going to be some pretty good players that are taken in this range, but we'll see what happens. Yeah, yeah, I think that was what I was going to ask next. Like, I, it's obviously not going to be okay. Well, the 30 guys who are going to be sixth rounders under the normal system are going to be available and signing for 20k. A lot of those guys mm-hmm. and who would be in round six or ten are going to pull themselves out. But um, from what you've gathered, is it going to be a a pretty good group? I mean, is there going to be top 10 round talent that's going to be out there for sure well if you consider the senior signs and past years top 10 round talent yeah. then i'd say right. probably just because a lot of those guys go in the six to ten round range just because teams are trying to save money for for other mm-hmm. picks um so in that sense yes but i do think there's going to be a pretty significant talent drop off i mean most of the guys who on talent on our board who are lined up in that range and don't get selected i think they'd be much better off going back to school Uh, or going to school in the first place or going to a junior college and getting back into a draft environment where there's 20 rounds, the slots are more typical, uh, and you just have more opportunities to land in a spot where you can get a six-figure bonus uh, that just isn't available here. So I I do think it's going to be a a fairly significant talent drop-off between those 20K players. But the area scouts who really do their homework and and know the guys who really just want to get started, they don't care about the money, want to just get their pro career started, if you have an area scout who knows those players, I think it could pay off for you. Is there, I mean, is there any concern among the agents and the players, uh, sorry, advisors at this point still officially, <laughs> and, the, and the players that um, in a year that they're uh, essentially almost in doubling the pool? So the guys who are you know, high school juniors now and um, guys who are college sophomores and other you know, college-eligible players and, and whoever... Mm stays back from next year is they is it a concern that they'll maybe get uh lost in the weeds there i think it's definitely a concern um it's going to have a ripple effect in the next few classes just because of the number of players that can now go back and have additional years of eligibility in college um already this was a very deep draft class and i think for the next three years really you're going to have lingering effects of just having five rounds and and that's going to make it more challenging for the guys uh, in future years, I think that's one of the reasons plenty of seniors this year who, while they might have eligibility to go back to school, 
they might think it's just better to go now because next year you have a really large senior class that you're competing against. And at the same time, you have to factor in age. Most teams pretty heavily factor in age at this point, and you can compare yourself going now when you're 22 years old versus mm-hmm. next year when you're 23. Yeah. Uh, that's a pretty significant gap on the model. Oh, and now you're competing against twice the senior size uh, class that you normally would compete against. So I think those are factors that, that are going to impact some decisions. This is something you touched on earlier, um, exactly where these guys are going to go once they sign. Obviously, it doesn't seem like there's going to be minor league baseball uh, really in any way, and it doesn't. it's not clear yet if these teams' spring training facilities or extended spring facilities are going to be open in Florida or Arizona. So where are these guys going to go? Are they just on a program where they Zoom with people from player development on their new pro teams all the time for the first year before <laughs> camp next year, or, or how are teams adjusting to that possibility on the fly? Yeah, I think that's an answer that I still don't have much clarity for. I don't know if teams at this point, obviously, if there's no minor league season, you would hope that there's some sort of extended uh, or complex league sort of thing that, that gets thrown up. Uh, but I think that's a real a real challenge that teams are going to have to figure out. Because if you not even talking about the draft guys, but just the, the prospects you already have in your system that have been waiting to get going, one year of not doing anything is really not, really bad for their development. Uh, yep. like these guys need to be playing. They need to be competing and, and getting better and getting stronger and, and just getting those reps. I mean, that's that's how you get better. And I'll be very curious to see what happens with a lot of these top prospects on our top 100 right now and, and the guys who are drafted who typically would be jumping into a system, at least getting a little taste before uh, the minor league season was over, how this kind of affects their development long-term. Because while getting in the cage is useful, uh, it, it doesn't come close to real competition. And I think that is an argument that a lot of college coaches are going to be using uh, insofar as trying to get guys back to campus because presumably they're going to be doing things during the fall once school gets started again. So I would love to get more clarity on that. I know the guys on on our minor league side at Baseball America have been thinking through that a lot, Mm -hmm. Um, but it's definitely something to consider. uh, And and hopefully we, we get that, that clarity in the coming weeks. This might be a completely dumb question, but that's that's what <laughs> no I, we, have the, we have those on, on this show, so uh, bear with me. But uh, is there a world in which, let's say there's 50 guys, whatever, whether it's you know 30 guys in a 20-player taxi squad for a major league team or maybe 30 and 30 or whatever, maybe the players demand extra slots. Is there a world where a team takes a player they select in this draft and has them in that major league camp i guess for the whole in a shortened season i mean is that possible with any of these guys uh i think we actually talked about this a little today in some of the the draft prep we're doing i I think that it could be possible there are some guys like girl caraway with dallas baptist or holden powell who are college relievers who could move pretty quickly uh and, and if you think you're competing or you think they're just ready i could see those type of players being rushed but at the same time I think there might be a hesitancy to draft someone and just kind of shoot them straight up without having any minor league seasoning. Um, And also also just starting the service time clock, if if you're going to start getting into that, I think it's pretty risky, Um, especially for some of these guys who are going at the top of the draft, like Spencer Torkelson and Austin Martin. Like, I don't know if those teams would ever be in a position to, to do what you're talking about. Maybe it's teams who are, we're a little bit further down in the draft. Um, but even then, I, I would be surprised just because we've never seen it. But at the same time, I don't know if that's great logic because we've really never seen the situation we're currently in. So I guess anything is possible. I would bet on the college relievers yeah. in that situation, though. 
I just remember a couple of years ago, obviously, was much more of a normal circumstance, but Red Sox fans were convinced that Durbin Feltman was going to come up and save the Red Sox bullpen for <laughs> See, that entirety of that season. And, and that's also the thing. Every year we're asked, like, who's going to be a quick rising guy to, to the majors? And, and the bullpen guys are always easy to say, but the track record of those guys is not that great. Yeah. So you're, you're still taking a pretty big risk. Um, just outside of the Red Sox world for a second, uh, give us the, because I'm sure, you know, with everything else going on in the world, um, people might not have been following. So give me, you know, the, you mentioned Spencer Torkelson, Austin Martin, uh, Arizona State and Vanderbilt. Like, give me the scouting reports on those guys and where they would rank among, like, top 100 prospects in baseball uh, immediately when they get in. Yeah, for sure. Spencer Torkelson is, is our number one player right now. He, like you said, he's the first baseman of the Arizona State. He's the best uh, power hitter in the class. He's a guy who we project to be a plus hitter at the next level with plus plus power, maybe top of the scale power. I think he's he's maybe one of the better power products out of college we've seen uh, in the last five years or more. I mean, Chris Bryant is the last guy you go back to that has mm-hmm. this sort of power production. And Chris Bryant had more swing and miss questions at the same time. And Spencer does now so I think he is a very safe major leaguer and a very safe bet to, to be an impact middle of the lineup type of hitter uh, I, I would find it hard to believe for him not to rank somewhere in the 10 to 20 range mm-hmm. uh, on our 100 right away um, that's traditionally where the number one pick goes I think yeah. Adley Rutschman is probably better than him he's a little bit higher um, so that would be my guess for him Austin Martin is our number two prospect and outfielder at Vanderbilt. He's played some third base there. Scouts wanted to see him play shortstop. I think he's a guy who's athletic enough and has the kind of hands and the actions to play shortstop or second base somewhere in the infield. Uh, but he's also a pretty natural defender in the outfield. Um, and while I touch on his defense first, I think it's it's a bat first player still. He might be the best pure hitter in the class, uh, a potential 70 grade hitter. He has matched against SEC competition. He has a really outstanding feel for the zone his eye and his ability to track a ball is extremely special he's not going to be the type excuse me the type of impact bat that Torkelson is in terms of power uh but he's a much better runner he's a very advanced and instinctual base runner uh and I think his just all-around value he's going to give you hitting he's going to give you defense he's going to give you base running personally I like him a little bit better than Torkelson but Mm-hmm. Uh, I understand the the kind of allure of the the power that that he's able to bring. So those two guys are our top guys. I think Austin Martin uh, would probably fit in that maybe 15 to 25 range, maybe a tick higher or lower. Uh, it's always fun trying to slot those guys in. Right. But somewhere in the top 25 for both of them, for sure, seems a safe bet. And it seems like those two are are pretty much locked in the first two spots at this point. Torgelson more so than Martin, I would say. There have been a lot of rumblings about Baltimore at two doing some sort of an underslot deal and then putting more money towards their overslot pick at 30, Mm -hmm. um, which could throw a wrench into things. I I do think that Austin Martin is probably still the favorite. Um, And those underslot deals, we hear rumblings of them every year, and they don't always turn out. So I think probably a safe bet for one-two. We have them currently one-two in the mock. Gotcha. Um, just a, a few more questions for you because I know you, you are busy. Um, when you think about these teams, going back to the undrafted pool, uh, when you think about the teams that have the most to offer um, and your knowledge of these systems, where do the Red Sox fit in? I mean, they have the brand, they have the tradition, but if you are a an amateur starting pitcher and you look at the track record that they've had in the last 10 years, it is absolutely horrendous, uh, first of all. <laughs> I mean, you're looking at 
Clay Buckholtz and uh, John Lester is really the last guys that they were able to bring up all the way. They, mm-hmm. they can't take all the credit for Eduardo Rodriguez because he was you know, originally an Oriole. Um, but when you look at where the Red Sox are, um, I've written and, and I've when we talked to uh, Paul Taboni the other day, it was, um, you know, they don't have the geographical advantage where I'm convinced that like the Braves are going to sign the entire Southeast. Like they're going to have all the <laughs> yeah. kids that grew up rooting for them. And like the Rangers yeah. and the Dodgers, those teams have that advantage. But with the Red Sox having a national fan base, like the Yankees, like the Dodgers, does that help them, you know, in a significant way in the undrafted pool? Uh, I think it might. Uh, I'm, I, I do think the fact that they're a big market team and they're traditionally competitive year in year out helps them. Um, they might not have the player development track record that a team like the Dodgers has, or yeah. maybe even a team like the Cardinals. Um, that might not be as uh, impressive an advantage against some other teams, but but the fact that the Red Sox are the Red Sox and have as, have won as much as they have and do have a national brand, I think is going to help them more than some other teams or looking at those players. Um, again, like it's it's kind of hard to to see how much that factors in when you look at all the other the other factors in terms of player development, minor league salary, location. I don't know that that geography would matter much for mm-hmm. for just where the MLB team is outside of like what is your kind of net of your fan base. Yeah. Um, just because a lot of these guys are are going to be the minors for a few years, so uh, I, I think I would imagine they're more towards the um the positive side of like which which program is appealing which organization is just an appealing organization for players but that's just me guessing you'd probably have a much better feel for that than i would at this point yeah they're hopeful of that obviously i think every team Mm -hmm. is but when you when you think about it you know there's obviously you know teams like the braves like i said that i think have an advantage Mm -hmm. the the rays are a team with that track record of always Mm -hmm. developing guys and there's a lot of really good prospects yeah. always from florida and the tampa area so yeah um the, the downside of maybe you'll eventually have to play at the trop could uh sway <laughs> some guys away from that uh yeah, let's we, just say i think they have a better chance than a team like the athletics who stopped paying their minor leaguers yeah that was a really that's a great uh selling point that's great for the recruiting <laughs> pitch that exactly there's, there's ever a global pandemic you don't get paid uh there you go should be Boom. on a bumper sticker for that sign up before i let you go my boss jim pignatello will hate this because he told me you can't just have make this a carolina podcast because it's a red sox podcast <laughs> and two weeks ago i had daniel bard on and we didn't really talk about chapel hill that much but i would like you to give us uh, before i let you go the scouting report for uh carolina baseball in this year's draft yeah actually unc's best prospect is a big mover in our most recent yeah, mock. Saw that aaron, yeah aaron sabato i think he's got a chance to really make some noise in the middle of the first round uh, he's honestly, uh, this might be unfair just because I don't want to ever comp anyone to the top player in the class, but he's like a, a Spencer Torkelson light. Mm-hmm. He's a guy who is first base only, right, right. Uh, he's shorter and less athletic than, than Spencer Torkelson, but he has massive raw power. I mean, his raw power stacks up with the top five players in the class for sure. He's incredibly strong. He came into UNC last year as a freshman and led the team in each triple slash category and home runs, a team that included uh, first-round pick Michael Bush. He's yep. a draft-eligible sophomore this year, so maybe that gets uh, a little bit difficult with his signability. But if you want impact in this class after the first few bats are gone, I mean, he's a pretty appealing guy. He strikes out a little bit. That would be the concern in addition to the just the lack of the defensive value that he's going to bring you. But he also walks at a, at a good clip and had some really competitive at-bats against Max Meyer, who's – one of the better pitchers in this class early this spring in front of a lot of uh, scouting heat. So 
he's the big guy for me. North Carolina always has a few interesting arms. I don't think there are any guys super high up outside of Sabato. Um, but but they're definitely looking at uh, a day one pick and a, a pretty impactful one in Aaron Sabato. Yeah, Carolina always has a good class, even if the even if nobody drafted us other than uh, <laughs> Baseball America and Mass Lab. So that is uh, Carlos Calazzo. He does great work at Baseball America. Always proud of fellow Tar Heels who are in baseball. And uh, good luck in the next couple of days. I hope your mock turns out as uh, well as you hope it does. Yeah, I appreciate it, Chris. Thanks for having me, man.